Hello, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, where, whatever time it is in whichever beautiful location you are at. Welcome to another episode of I'm Afraid It's Terminal. Donde esta la I'm Afraid It's Terminal. And the reason why I'm speaking Spanish will become very clear soonish. Um, yeah, Spanish is very, it's actually one of those languages that I've wanted to learn for a bit of time now, do you get me? But it's one of them that I've been procrastinating on, so soon come, man's not had the time to do to learn Spanish or make podcasts as well, unfortunately, um, which is why man's been away for a few weeks. Um, so just before we get started, first of all, I'd like to say a quick thank you to everyone that listens to this, that's been asking where is it at, because man's been preoccupied with other things, so, you know, it's definitely not, it's not dead, it's not, you know, it's not a terminal illness that this podcast has yet um but yeah we are we are out here um i don't know if you guys remember but a few months ago for those of you who do me and ak cognito who's a writer on instagram we featured on a more serious podcast so go and check his stuff out but we announced that we're writing a book um that book is almost at completion now so when the pre-order date is out i will let you guys know but the shit's gonna be lit so so you know hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as we enjoy so there's that, and there's also more series. So for those of you who listen to that, for those of you who don't listen to that, sorry, and you listen to this, you're missing out because that shit is funny. It's me and Musa, and we take the piss out of random things that are going on during the day. So make sure you guys go and check out more series. Now, speaking of taking the piss, this leads me very nicely into the podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to be talking about one of the biggest piss takers in the history of piss takers. Um, so just, just off the top of my head, I really, I like the idea of people that finesse, right? Uh, although it's bad and although it's that kind of looked down upon and frowned upon, it's not, you know, it's not a good thing, but you've got to like applaud some people's imagination. So, uh, who comes to mind, for example, is a guy from, they made a film about him called Catch Me If You Can. It's a guy called Frank Abagnale and he started off by posing as a teacher when he was in school and that just like kind of he was the the doctor guy you know the black kid who was the doctor pretended to be a doctor but he wasn't really a doctor and you know niggas caught him slipping he was that on steroids he used to pretend to be a pilot businessman everything this guy's been doing it his whole life and i spoke about the other guy as well um my friend Mohammed actually put me onto this guy but it was a guy who sold um a bridge that wasn't his and there's was there other people who sold the eiffel towers you know natural born finesses but this guy here was a spanish dude right and that's why i was speaking spaniel in the beginning he was called pujol garcia okay i found out recently that spanish people what they do is they have two surnames so they have the mum's name and the dad's name and they got after each other that's why most spanish people are they've got a double barrel surname without a hyphen in it the only people that have a double barrel surname in the uk are people we consider posh so people will come like oh my name is henderson beckett john henderson beckett that's my name. And they're usually very middle class. You know, they come from like somewhere like Oxfordshire or some shit like that. But yeah, in Spain, that shit is normal. The the, the working class and, the, you know, everyone um, has a name. One from their mom and one from their dad. There's, there's even guys, I know a guy who's called like something Perez Perez because both his mom and his dad have the same surname. I don't know if, if, the, mo- if the, the wife takes the husband's name. Um, I think that might just be an, an English sort of concept, but who knows, do you get me? But yeah, this guy over here, uh, he was a Spanish dude, right? And the Spanish Civil War kicked off and he he was known to have like a crazy imagination. He would always let his imagination run wild. And maybe that's what appeals to me in, in the whole idea of someone who finesses something. Uh, this guy was said to have 
such an imagination that when he was six years old, he he drove right into like a glass window because he was daydreaming about something or other. And I was I was the same kid. I was a kid who, uh, from until I was about eight or nine, I used to, teachers thought I was dumb, but it was because I was I would always be like staring into space and I'm thinking about something or other. I'm in my own world. I'll be staring at the window, imagining a fight between monsters and cars and who'd win or some shit like that. So maybe yeah, maybe that's that's why this shit kind of gets to me but i like it anyway this guy was a he was a very simple guy do you get me he was he was an underachiever in the sense that he came from a very wealthy family uh, his family seen him as somewhat of a failure because when man finished like they wanted him to go to school he tried that didn't work out for him the spanish civil war kicked off and you had to join his side and you had to go to war um he tried being a soldier he tried to defect you know, and, and say, you know, I'm not involved in this war and in, in any of this bullshit, basically. He tried to leave it. And he was caught and he was put into prison. And when he came out of prison, um, he... First, he became like a farmer. He was like a chicken farmer. He decided, you know, you know what? He kind of given up on life in the sense that he wasn't really amounting to much because his wild imagination just kept having him looking at other things. And he decided that he would just get married and, and you know, work in a hotel in Madrid, he had his own hotel. And that's when shit started changing for him. So the war kicked off in, you know, World War Two kicked off. Spain was neutral. Spain weren't involved with any side of the war. But this guy, he thought Hitler, he thought of Hitler as a demon, do you get me? This guy was very, he was ingrained and he was raised with ideas that would be progressive even by today's standards. He was raised with the whole, you know, every man is free, every man's got their liberty and their free will. It's mad that that's, that's labelled as progressive. But yeah, that's, that's the idea that he had. He was very against the whole fascist movement. And he said that he wanted to start like a personal battle with Hitler in it. Like it's just me against you. And he wanted to be a spy, okay? So this guy... Wanting to be a spy, he lives in Spain. Um, he goes to the British embassy and he offers his services to them. He says, you know, I can offer you my services. And they're like, what services, my guy? Who are you, fam? You're, you're a nobody. You you farm chickens. Do you get me? What can you do for us? There's a, there's a war going on. Don't waste my time. You know, they basically laughed him out the door. And the man left, you know, but he didn't have his tail between his legs and he didn't give up at that point. So what did he do? He did what any sane man would have done in the face of rejection. He went to the other side. He went to the Germans and he said, yo, I'll spy for you, man. So he went to the Germans and um, he came up to them and he said, you know, I'm, I want to be a spy for you guys. And some guy said, okay, cool. The Germans took it a little bit more seriously. And they said, you know, more serious, no pun intended. Um, the Germans took it seriously and they said, um, meet with this guy called General Francesco or whatever in, in this cafe in Madrid at this time. He'll be wearing a trench coat that looks like this. So this dude went over there, met with this guy, and this guy was trained in the in like spotting fakers, people that were lying about being loyal to Hitler or people that were faking the whole I'm I'm a I'm a heartless racist, you know. You have to apparently the best kind of monster to be is an authentic monster. You know, you can't be out here pretending to be bad shit so was, <laughs> you gotta you gotta really be a bad person you gotta be a horrible person to, to join the ranks of the the third right do you get me so this guy came and he's absolutely sold the story this like he was he was a natural born finesse he sold the story amazingly well he was talking about you know i hate jews and this and that and you know i'm i'm, I'm totally with the furrow you know probably how you phrased it man's totally with the furrow um these guys took him on and they decided, you know, let's give you a an assignment. Let's see how well you do. They said to him, 
<clears throat> if you can get hold, because Spain was was neutral, they weren't in the war at the time, and they said like if you can, um, I, I don't think they were neutral actually, but they weren't involved in the war at that particular time. They said if you can get a diplomatic visa that allows you to travel freely, then you can join our ranks, right? So this guy went to like Portugal and he found he made friends with this guy. They got on like a house on fire. Um, the whole idea for him though, this guy was a diplomat. The whole idea for him was I'm trying to steal your ship. So on on a particular night out that was going very, it, it, that was heading in a very messy direction. Uh, my man, Juan Pujol, excused himself from the party and he said, yo, you know what, I've got to be, I'll be right back. He went upstairs to the hotel room, grabbed the guy's visa, photocopied it. I say photocopied, they didn't have that shit back then. He took a picture of it and, you know, forged the document very well. And a few days later, he replaced it back in the place that it was. And that allowed him to travel between England and um, Spain and Portugal and wherever, basically, in, in a freeway because he was a diplomat. So this guy <clears throat> went back to the Germans and he'd earned the stripes, you get me? They were convinced that this guy was the real deal. They're like, you know, you're a G. Um, and they said to him, they gave him money, they gave him invisible ink, which was some spy tools, and they gave him like a bunch of other communication shit. And they said, go to, they sent him to England. They said, go to England, pretend to be a BBC radio presenter and spy for us and tell us what's going on. What did this man do? He did exactly as they said and he reported back to them what was happening in England, except... He wasn't in England, he was in Portugal. That's where he went. He went to Portugal and he was making everything up. He was completely just like uh, utterly bullshitting everything that, that would come up with. Um, he'd say, oh, the troops are mobilising from here. This is going on on this side. This is going on over there. All completely made up, fabricated. Um, and he'd, he'd send information to the Germans and he'd dress it up so well. He'd make it very, very convincing to the point that and like the, the only way he'd get it was he'd get it from TV. So he'd watch the TV and he'd catch four, a four-second glimpse of like a warplane and he'd make up all the lies along with it. Um, it got to the point where I think the British intercepted some of his messages and they said, you know, oh, this guy, there's no way this guy's never ever been to Spain. Uh, I mean, this guy's never ever been to Britain. He must have seen what we were doing, but he wasn't. He was really, he was in Portugal doing his own thing. At this point, he went back to the British and he said, yo, um, I am now in with these Germans, they, they think of me as a spy, I've got this, I've got invisible ink, let me spy for you fam, let me offer you my services. And again, these guys laughed him out the door, they said, at this point he probably became a running joke, oh, that crazy Spanish guy keeps coming in talking about, I want to be a spy, you're not James Bond mate, calm down. So they told him to piss off once again. Um, so the dude left and he was kind of, you know, disheartened, but he it didn't deter him because this guy was so determined to get Hitler that he was willing to, to carry on with it. And at that point he must have probably been thinking like, how is it so easy to work with my enemies and my friends, the people that I want to work for, are, are kicking me out the door and, you know, I'm basically um, doing everything I can to try and aid them and, and they're not having it. So, I don't know, goes to show in life, and it? Maybe it's the same shit, who knows. Um, yeah, but this dude, my dude went back to um, Lisbon and it got to a point where he gave a particular report of what was going on in... Um, North Africa saying that there's troops British troops that are mobilising to go to North Africa and just by pure coincidence he happened to be right that one time so Britain intercepted his message and they're like oh this guy is warning Germans about someone mobilising there is a spy within Britain that's giving them all this information the whole of the MI5 or whatever the whole British government was in turmoil they were thinking like shit who is the spy where is he let's try and catch him not knowing that my man's been knocking on their door for years and years 
um, eventually they find out that it is this guy and he's the one guy that he that can have the German military listening to him because you know at this point he'd earned the stripes do you get me like he started doing things so well the British took him in they brought him to England and they started to support him and help him with whatever he was doing they were, they were giving him what's called like chicken feed information and so it's like extremely useless and extremely little information that you can verify as being correct do you get me so it's enough for them to be like oh okay so he's actually got a connect man it is actually the plug but it's not enough for, for it to make a difference in the war um and one of the best ways in which they used that was during a particular operation in malta i believe it was right so they had a thing that was going on in malta um and Sorry, I don't think it was Malta. It was actually North Africa again. But I had a thing that was going on over there. And this guy basically said to them, he, he sent them a letter. He sent them uh, a letter with the whole planning of what's going to happen on that day to the T. Like literally every little blast bit of preparation and detail, he sent it to the Germans. Except he sent it so that it would arrive a day after the invasion had already happened. But the Germans received this message and they were like, yo, mad this guy actually knows what he's on about. He's sick. And they sent him a radio saying, yo, next time, tell us straight away. You know, thinking that there would be a next time. There wasn't. Um, my man actually got to the point of inventing 27 fake employees. So he'd have one in like, for example, in Birmingham. And he'd say, ah, oh, you know, one of one of my guys in Birmingham have, have noticed that um, there's, a, there's a large mobility of troops that are just moving about over here so we're probably gonna they're probably gonna go and attack from here and make up some bullshit to go along with it but there needed to be a source and there needed to be people on the payroll who was paying for all that not the british the germans germans are saying to him oh okay give this money here to your connect and the british were working on it so well that if if my man said i've got a john smith that lives in liverpool um and they get a little bit of information out of him they'd kill him off and you know when he dies his name ends up in the Liverpool newspaper for you know they got this little bit in the newspaper that talks about all the deaths in in that week or whatever. Um, his name would appear over there um, to to try and you know bamboozle the Germans, and that's how much they believed it. Uh, and there was one very very big thing that this guy took part in: um, the fact that my man could finesse someone. By the way, the Germans loved him so much they gave him like the highest honor of their country. They gave him like the Iron Cross, which is the highest possible thing that someone can get. Um, D-Day came, which is the, the massive invasion that happened right at the end of the war. The, the thing that literally put the nail in the coffin. After this shit happened, Hitler killed himself in it. He knew that, you know, the war had been lost. So what my man did was there was two possible places that these, the allies, the, the English and the, the Americans and stuff could attack from. It was either going to be Normandy or it was going to be Calais, right? And they had to convince them that it was going to be the one that they weren't going to. So they were actually going to Normandy and they had to try and convince them that it was going to be in Calais, right? So what these men did was they set up in the south of England, um, like the southern southern coast of England, and they set up over there. They started this fake company called like Fusag or some shit. Like that. I can't remember the name, some weird name. They set up like a fake company over there. They, they set up like fake oil rigs to the point that they were blowing dust. They were using like giant windmills um like wind turbines and shit to blow dust across the channel so that it actually looks like oh there's there's factories and power plants over here and shit they had like birds uh, and pigeons and they put things on their legs same property of fusag company or whatever um the whole shit would be mobilizing and this guy uh juan pujol who they they nicknamed the agent garbo at that point he would say oh yes all signs are pointing towards 
a, a thing coming from Calais. Uh, the message became obvious at that point, you know, like these guys were being kind of bait with it. Um, and he was saying like, oh, you know, it's, it's not going to be in Normandy. It's definitely going to be in Calais. There's no way they're going to do it on the other end. The day of the invasion rolls around and the Germans were so ill-prepared for this invasion that these men were literally like the, the troops stationed in Normandy, which is where the British were going to attack from. The general who ran that whole place took a day off because he wanted to go shopping with his wife. It was her birthday or something like that. He actually de-escalated the level of readiness. He said, you know, the weather's terrible. Today's going to be the most boring day ever. Try and find something to do. Um, go and relax. That's what he basically said to his troops. So when these guys came, it was literally like they were caught with their pants down. Two days later, two days went by. And this is how convincing the initial ploy was. Two days went by and the Germans were still convinced that it was going to happen in Calais they had all the troops ready in Calais they had you get me they were ready for war over there and nobody was going was, was being reinforced so after two days the general that was over there sent a message to Hitler saying yo we are being absolutely overran over here we need some kind of support can you send us some tanks um Hitler you know reluctantly very reluctantly agreed because man didn't like to be proven wrong he he knows why I'm, he's he's they're kind of smug about it if anything they're saying like oh we've got this double agent over here you think we're stupid uh, and him, that means like um, in Somali, that means like he's he's humoring them. He's saying, yes, yes, stay where you are, guys. Like, you know, these men are coming over here. Um, reluctantly, Hitler agreed to send some reinforcements to Normandy. He wanted to send some of his tanks that he valued very much. Um, and just as he's doing that, just as they're mobilizing and they turn around, they get a message from, from their Juan Pujol. Garcia, right, saying um, there is there is very very strong evidence that a lot of the troops have been withheld so that they uh, they commence with an invasion in Calais. Um, they are trying to get you to move your your tanks to this other end. It's definitely a diversionary thing, so be very very careful. Um, and these men underlined diversionary, brought it to Hitler, and that's all he needed to see. Called the tanks up again. He's like, turn back around, lads. We've been had. We've been had, do you get me? Not knowing that they've actually been had then. That was the time that they've been, they've been getting had, do you get me? So, um, yeah, the, the invasion commenced and Hitler lost. And this guy was given the golden, he was given another honour, but in Britain, for his services to the war. So he was actually the only guy ever to receive two medals, two of the highest honours ever for two different countries that were in on other sides of the war, you know, one, one for the Allies and one for the Germans. Um, so these men were, funny name that, you know, the Allies, like, you know, one side is the Allies and the other side is the, the I don't know what they are, the right wing, the, the who, who's a good right wing, I know, William, the Williams. It's a football joke if you guys didn't get it. Man's right wing. Right wing is like right midfield, but yeah, shit joke. Um, but yeah, this guy's crazy. Anyway, he died very shortly after the war, or that's what he had everyone believing. He didn't really die. Man was living in Venezuela for like four years, and when the time came, <clears throat> some guy searched him out. You know, this guy wanted to just like live in peace. He said he wanted to live a normal life. He had enough of the whole war thing. Moved to Venezuela, lived there for another like 30 years, and this guy, this journalist found him, and he went back to the UK to, to you know, visit the graves in like France and shit, and he visited the graves of like all the soldiers that died and shit, and he felt bad that that many had died. He wanted to save even more. Um, even though he'd saved tens of thousands of lives. And 
just as that had happened, um, there was a lot of old veterans who were in their 70s and 80s and stuff living in the area, and they heard that this guy was here. They heard about the Spanish, the elusive Spanish guy who saved their lives 40 years ago, and they couldn't believe it. So they went all the way down to the where wherever he was, and one by one, they just come to him like, you saved my life, thank you, you saved my life. Which is, I, I don't know how nobody's made a film about this guy's life, because that shit is absolutely batshit insane. How can you how can you be a chicken farmer, and now you are, are blagging the fact that you've got 27 so, soldiers on your payroll, um, and you've been out here killing niggas. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy. I really, really, I can't believe I spent 19 minutes talking about this guy, but yeah, it's, yeah it's, that shit is mad. This is why I'm such a big fan of history. Like it gives you, it gives you some mad perspective as to like how we are, who we are right now. Um, because like just because of that, for example, I was watching another documentary about the Vietnam War, and these men were talking about how everyone that they knew back in the day were veterans. Everyone who they looked up to would would obviously be World War Two right, veterans because they just came back from it, and that's why everyone wanted to either go to Vietnam or they were staunchly anti-war, depending on how you were brought up, and maybe that's maybe this is why we finesse. Maybe we finesse because of Juan Pujol Garcia or whatever his name is, but I don't know. Like how how things move and how things how things um, how things come back at you has an effect on your behavior so these men did some sort of experiment where they got this guy who um he, he was he was he was part of the whole the whole research team to be honest but this guy basically what they did was they played this game where they give everyone a sum of money so they, let's say they give everyone like a quid and you get to choose how much you contribute to a joint pot so there's four of you man um you get you guys get to choose how much you contribute to that uh, to that fund and what happens is however much is in the fund they, they being the guys holding the experiment, they double the money and they share it between everyone. So let's say everyone gives a pound and puts a pound into that pot. Um, you end up with eight quid and everyone, everyone gets a quid out of it. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you make, you make a decent amount of money. You make like 50p. I don't know. Man. Listen, I don't know the maths. Okay. That's not the point. The point is if everyone puts the money in, you make money. But if you're the only one that puts the money in. You end up with less money. Everyone else ends up with a little bit more money. Okay. So what it did was they ran two different experiments. One where you have like ten seconds to decide, and the other one when you got like basically like I don't know. You got a while. You got like five minutes to decide whether you want to do it or not. And <clears throat> they found that when people had more time, they would consistently choose to. Uh, well, not consistently, but they would more often choose to basically keep as much money as possible because they got to think about the consequences of, oh, what if, what if, what if, more and more. But human beings' first instincts is to to give the money, right? Now, this is interesting because our first instinct is to be generous, but that can also be unlearned. So they found that even if you were given money, um, uh, even if you were in the, in the group where they were asking you quite quickly and, you know, you were following your first instincts, if... Um, if what happened was that you get fucked over a few rounds basically and, and nobody else gives you money and you end up losing shit, you start to change that behavior and you become more like them. So you give, you start to give less money and that breeds more of that. So it's literally like how we interact with each other. When someone is negative towards you or someone 
you know, hits you with some with a bit of bad behavior, we go, we then go and spread that to someone else, and and that's where the cycle begins. Okay, it's the same shit. It's it's a learned behavior, and they found that if people were nice to each other, um, if someone had been nice to me in the previous round, I'd be nicer in a future round. Um, they ran another experiment alongside this, which is that after the whole thing finished, they'd say how much do you want to give to this third party in charity who. Um, you won't get anything back, basically. But how much would you do out of the goodness of your heart? And they found that the group with less time to decide generally gave more, whereas the other group gave less because they'd seen how much of a of a, of a bad world it is. They also found that people from countries that are more corrupt <clears throat> would generally give less. But I don't know by what metric you can you can say corrupt. You get me? Because in this thing, they were saying that the US and Kenya. Now, maybe Kenya is more corrupt. I'd say that they're about as corrupt as each other, but, well, to be honest with you, that's based on nothing. But, obviously, corruption comes in different forms, I think. So, um, there's that white-collar corruption when you can't really tell what's going on. And there's blatant corruption where the Fed is saying to you, like, you know what I'm saying? All right, yes, you've been speeding. Slide me a little tenner. And, you know, I'll, I'll get you off this whole charge. Now, where that apparently comes from is the idea that especially when you're living in a smaller society, um, you've got to be nice just in case because you'll probably see these niggas around again, especially if you live in a small little village or a small little city. You will probably see these people around. You have to be cool with them. Now, if if you lived in a world or if you lived in a place just like in, in that game, which was online or social media, which is which is where the other example is, um, it's a big world where you probably, you will never ever come across, you can send someone a hate message and you'll never see them ever again. You'll never ever come across them. Now that creates a different mentality and that changes it completely. Now, just like how this experiment had, has got a way in which you can learn behaviours, you know, like, um, what, in the sense that if you get money, if you, you know, if you become generous, it breeds more generosity. It's the same shit on social media, except it's in a different way. So on, on social media, we have this thing where if you're expressing outrage, right, if you are expressing that something is crazy or you're standing up for something, if you do it in real life, as an example, if you stand up for yourself, um, if you if you see a kid getting bullied and you step in over there, then you are a hero to all the people that have witnessed that and you come out of that feeling like a good person. Even if no one's witnessed that, you will feel good inside you. And you are also projecting to people, I am moral person i'm a good person now on social media when you quote tweet right ah this vegan shit over here like animals are being killed this is unjust and you use highly emotive words it's the same thing you are projecting okay bomb i'm a moral person i am a good person to the world that's the first thing that you're doing and the feedback loop comes from all the retweets and all the people that agree with you okay so um you've got this this system basically which which will feed itself um because you're getting a shitload of retweets it's like literally how many people coming up to you and tapping you in the back and saying yes i agree with this statement you are a morally sound person that person will feel good and when they see something else it will become a habit to do the same shit just like how it's your first instinct when you are um being paid the money it's your first instinct to give more money it will become your first instinct to boom i'm gonna criticize without without a care for the consequences um this and this shit the problem with this is it's manipulated by a computer it is it is fostered like there's a there's a system behind this where twitter will favor tweets that are more controversial because they will get more more of a reaction whether that's a positive or a negative reaction doesn't matter um as an example like diane abbott the mp she received like half of the hate tweets 
that were sent towards female MPs over, over the course of a year, half, right? She's a black MP for, for Labour, for the Labour Party, and she's, you know, known to have some, like, she, she stands up for herself, basically, you know? but people give her a lot of hate, and Twitter, Twitter's algorithm works in a way that perpetuates that, do you get me, and it makes it, increases it, and it's not doing it for any, it doesn't care about good or bad, it cares about interactions and, and reach and clout, basically, you know? Um, but the issue we're having here is when the charity came into it at the end of the experiment, people who had bad experiences in the past because of this this uh, computer program would react worse towards that. It actually changed their behavior. So if if a computer can change a computer can change someone's behavior, now we have an algorithm who's manipulating and dictating hundreds of millions, even billions of people's behavior because that's how many people are on these social media sites. What is that going to do to us? And what is that going to make us learn? And what is that going to teach us? And what is that going to teach our kids? I don't know. Do you get me? I probably talk about the whole fact that computers are after us quite a lot. Do you get me? And I do, right? And I do. But I don't do it because, because you know what I'm saying to you, it's, it's anything um, where I want to be selfish or anything like that. What I do it because like, when the day comes around and Amazon own everything and robots and shit are everywhere, I can turn around and say, I told you so. <laughs> because that's what's really important, guys, saying I told you so when you are right. Uh, I'm going to conclude the episode with that. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to this. And yeah, make sure you like, comment, subscribe and all that shit. Um, I don't even know if that's possible on SoundCloud, but yeah, do it. Listen to more serious. Um, yeah, peace. I'll catch you guys whenever I catch you next week, hopefully.